Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. Today we continue our series in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9. I'm going to read through it first, and then I'll pray, and as we go through the sermon, I'll make sure that the text actually appears on the screen behind me as we go. But just a reminder, series like these are um, helpful, or at least a little more accessible if you have the scriptures open in front of you, so you can see these things for yourselves. One of my goals as your pastor is to encourage you by the preaching in this way, I want you to leave here saying, I can see that in the text for myself. I want you leaving saying, I understand this passage more, and it's easier to do that if you have the Bible open in front of you. So feel free to grab one of those. There's a couple in the back as well if you don't have one with you, and then I will go through the text in the sermon as well. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us by your word. Lord, that we would be given clear vision of who you are. Would we see the value and importance of a vision of Christ? And Lord, we pray that you would give us ears that are able to hear, hearts that are willing to understand and obey your word. We love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We began last week looking at this book, and one of the things that I wanted to stress to you, 
Same thing I'm going to stress now. This book is applicable to our lives no matter what generation we are living in. This is an immensely practical book. This is a book that's designed to encourage the church of Jesus Christ. And it is a book that includes blessing as a part of its power. In verse 3, we heard this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. There's blessing attached to our reading and hearing and obeying what's written in the book of Revelation. If you go to the end of the book in chapter 22, you find something very similar. There is a blessing given to those who hear it. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. There is an expectation that we honor this book by not adding to it or taking away from it. Earlier in 22, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The book of Revelation is an important book that we want to handle carefully. And so what we're doing in this sermon series is reading the Scriptures as the Scriptures are designed. We saw last week that this is apocalyptic literature, this is prophetic literature, this is a letter to the church, and we'll see that there are some specific churches named who are representative of the entire church of Jesus Christ who have been given this letter for our good. We don't want to add to it by looking at the world today and saying, oh, let's figure out who fits in where in the book of Revelation. We don't want to add to it by finding ways to date things like the second coming of Jesus Christ, but rather we want to receive it as it is, for as we do that, we are blessed. The first eight verses of this chapter set us up with the gospel. The foundation of this entire letter is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So verse 9 has the gospel understood underneath it. And so everything we talk about, everything we talk about today and everything we talk about through the rest of this series is not in addition to the gospel, is not separate from the gospel, but is built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. So what happens when the kingdom that Jesus is building among us clashes with the kingdoms of this world? It's a very real, practical problem. When the kingdom of God clashes with worldly, earthly kingdoms, how are we to live? That's a very real problem for the people of the first century who were receiving this letter. Let's look at this. Verse 1. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John begins this letter after introducing the gospel in his introduction. He begins the letter by describing the current situation, particularly as it attaches itself to his identity. 
He has an identity, and he wants to make sure that the people of God who are receiving this letter knows who he is. We believe, because it's always been believed, that the author of this letter is John the Apostle, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and who wrote the three letters that we call 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. The same person calls himself a brother. This is a brother. It's important for the church to hear this. This is somebody who's a part of them. That he's a part of them because he's in Christ. That's his static identity. It's not changing. It's immutable. He is a brother in Christ. This is what happens for all of us. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we join the family of God and we are brother or sister in Christ. And the beauty of this is that we don't get to choose our family. We are family because we are family. There may have been people who knew John when he was in Ephesus and go, I didn't really like that guy. A little heavy-handed. Got mean at times because we have reports that he did. But he's their brother. And he writes this letter not from apostolic authority, the way Paul would. He writes this as a brother. As a brother to other brothers and sisters saying, I love you, I'm in your family, I want you to hear this. John's spirit here is one of serving the church of Jesus Christ as a brother. That's his static identity. He's a brother in Christ that will never change. But in addition to this static reality of his identity in Christ, there's a dynamic reality, and that's the way his being a brother interacts with the world around him. He is, he calls himself, a partner in the tribulation. This is one of the reasons why we do not believe the tribulation is some future thing that we're going to enter at some point, but that the tribulation is the state of being for the church in a world that hates the things of God. He is a partner in the tribulation. This is John writing in the first century, in the 90s. So he's not looking ahead to some future tribulation that might happen in the future, but says, no, tribulation is how the church interacts with the world around us. As Jesus would say, they will hate you because they hated me. And the church at this time is suffering. There is an emperor who has decided that Christianity is a direct threat to the empire, and so he's going to wipe it out if he can. He has to get rid of the only apostle who's still alive, and for some reason, he's not able to kill him, and so he sends them to Patmos. That's what's on the screen over here to the left of the words. Patmos is there. It's really two islands connected to one another. He's on this southernmost part of the island down there. He's been exiled. If you go to Patmos now, there's a nice little city, kind of a touristy area. It's beautiful. Not so in John's day, there's nothing there. It's effectively a deserted island. And he's there suffering. He's there suffering because the church as a whole is suffering. But he's not just a partner in their suffering and their tribulation. He's a partner in the kingdom. He's a partner in the work that they're there to do, which is to establish the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus has so ordained that his church would be involved in the building of the kingdom. And so the suffering that the church is facing is is because Rome sees this as a competing kingdom. The way they live, the way they love one another, 
the way they serve their community, the way they don't get involved in the idol worship and in the prostitution of that day. You see, the way of life that the church was proclaiming, not just, hey, come to Christ and you get to go to heaven when you die, but a whole new way of being called the kingdom of God was a direct threat to Rome. And so the tribulation the church is facing is not a tribulation just because Rome doesn't like the religious doctrines of the church. It's because those religious doctrines were creating people who were so transformed by the gospel that they were destroying the Roman system as they knew it. They were a direct threat to the way Rome did life. John was a partner in that, still is a partner in that. He's a partner in the kingdom and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Here John says that I'm a partner in your suffering because I'm a partner in your kingdom work. And we're feeling this suffering because our kingdom, the kingdom of God, is clashing against the Roman kingdom. And the truth is that the kingdom of God clashes against any earthly kingdom, whether it's called Rome whether it's called um, the, the, the big um, Russian empire, however you want to describe that, whether it's called the United States, the kingdom of God will inevitably clash with the kingdoms of this world. And the way we make it through that clash, the way we witness to Christ as the church of Jesus Christ, as the kingdom of God clashes against the empire of the United States, the way that we get through it is through patient endurance. Not through seizing power. Not by trying to become more influential than the other guy. And certainly not by trading our morality or trading our ethic or trading our truth for a political platform. But rather... The church of Jesus Christ witnesses to our risen Lord as our kingdom clashes with other kingdoms by patiently enduring the suffering that comes. This is why it's important for us to have the book of Revelation at our disposal. It keeps us from seeking lesser gods or shortcuts. We endure. Suffering will come. In some parts of the world, suffering has already come. In some parts of the world, suffering has always been. The church of Jesus Christ endures because Christ is with her. And that's what we'll see. So he describes who he is. He's on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Quick pause. We know when John had this revelation. It was on a Sunday. By the time John writes this, um, the Lord's day was just shorthand. That's, we worshiped on Sunday, very early in the life of the church. Uh, we were celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My uh, friend who does the Goodwill Talk podcast with me, Jessica, always reminds me that in some sense, Easter isn't all that special a day. Because every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why we call it the Lord's Day. We stopped worshiping on the Jewish Sabbath, started worshiping on the Lord's Day, and in way of celebrating the resurrection. So we know John on the island of Patmos was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He's worshiping the Lord there by himself in spirit and in truth. 
because that's what we do on Sunday mornings. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. We'll look at those churches in a moment. But I want to point something out. John describes the voice as the sound of a trumpet. Patmos is not just an island, but it is in fact an island with mountains. It's an island filled with mountains. If you go there today, you'll find a bunch of smaller mountains and then one large mountain. And the idea of John on a mountainous island hearing a trumpet rings bells for people who are reading this in the first century because it sounds very much like what Moses encountered. Many, 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 many generations before, Moses had led the people out of Egypt. And they'd been going towards the promised land, but they needed to know how to live as this new rescued community. And so God says, I want you to come up onto Mount Sinai and meet with me there. Wait until the third day. And on the third day, you're going to hear me call you up. And on the third day, in fact, Moses was called up by the voice of God that sounded like a trumpet. He's called up into Mount Sinai, and he is given then instructions for the entire people of Israel, not just the people of Israel who were alive then, but all the generations of the people of Israel who would live after. Moses was called onto a mountain, heard the voice of God that sounded like a trumpet, and then was given a message for the people. John is given the exact same thing, but instead of for the people of Israel, Israel is for the new Israel, Israelites and Gentiles alike bound together in Christ. It is a message for the church. And not just the churches that are mentioned here, these seven churches. He does mention the seven, and they're in the same order that we'll see as we go into chapters 2 and chapter 3. If you look from Patmos back towards the Roman Empire in what's now modern-day Turkey, these are the seven churches that create a little bit of a circle there in Turkey, starting with Ephesus and moving around in a circle, you end up back at Ephesus. And so, John writes these letters to seven specific churches, but those seven specific churches stand in for the whole of the church of Jesus Christ throughout history. There's a guy named Victorinus of Petovium. This is a guy who's writing at the end of the 3rd century, beginning of the 4th century. He was killed, actually, in the Great Persecution. He was a martyr died under Diocletian's reign in about 304 A.D. So this is a guy who's very close to the persecution that John is facing because he's facing the same persecution just 200 years later. Here's what he says about the book of Revelation. He's He's actually the oldest commentary we have is from him. He mentions, speaking of John, seven churches by the explicit use of their own names to which he has sent letters. He does this not because they are, only, they are the only churches or even the most important of the churches. Notice Rome's missing, Corinth is missing, Colossa is missing. He writes to them because what he says to one, he says to all. For it makes no difference whether one speaks to a cohort in number only a few soldiers 
or whether, or whether one speaks through the cohort to the entire army. In other words, what he's saying is he writes to these few churches, and in writing to them, he's writing to everyone. Everyone who was living at the time, everyone who would come after him. And so that means that next week, when we get into the seven churches, and we start going through them, the message given to the church in Ephesus or Smyrna, or the message given to Pergamum, the message given to each and every one of these churches is not just for them, but also for us to receive as warnings, as encouragements, and as visions of Jesus Christ. Because that's what happens next. John is given this mosaic mission. He's to do the thing that Moses did. Send down from the mountain a message to the church. But before he does so, John turns to see who's talking to him. After all, I would do the same thing if I heard a trumpet voice behind me telling me to do something. I'd turn around and say, who's talking to me? Right? Here's what John sees. Oh, a little slower. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. He turns around to see Jesus, and that's what he sees. I spent a few days in Colorado at a uh, leadership training intensive. I'm taking, a part, uh, I'm taking part of a, of a training program that's 18 months long called Arrow Leadership. And we were in Colorado together, everybody who's in this group, it's 13 of us plus some leaders. One of the questions they asked us was, what is your vision of Jesus? When you think of Jesus, what do you see in your mind's eye? When you think of God, what do you see? And some were very honest. They said, I see somebody who uh, is like a shark. One wrong move and he'll eat you up. Others say, I see God as, I see Jesus as one who welcomes the little children, is very gentle and meek and mild. And that particular vision of Jesus is true. We see that in the Gospels. I think a lot of us, that's where our minds go when we think of Jesus. We think of the Jesus who is, is just very, very approachable. Very, very enjoyable to be around. We think of a Jesus that children wanted to run towards. We don't necessarily think of a Jesus who is glowing white, whose eyes are aflame like fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and whose voice is like the roar of many waters. That's not necessarily what we think. But when we enter into the presence of God in worship, we don't only have the friendly Christ, we have the glorified, majestic Christ in our midst. His glory on full display. 
which is why we ought not walk into worship too lightly or too glibly, for this is our God. Eyes of flame like fire, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. His hair's head, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. This should be a vision that sparks awe, perhaps even holy fear in our hearts. This is the one who gives John his mission. Quick question. If you came into contact with a being like this, and he told you to do something, would you think twice about it? You say, you know what, let me think about that for a minute. I'm not so sure. A being like this gives you a commission. You say, eh, kind of uncomfortable with that, actually. I'm old. don't really want to write all these different letters. I'm good, thank you. No. No, you probably do exactly what John did. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He's not the first person to see God and respond this way. Actually, this vision of Christ is a mashup of two visions from the book of Daniel. I'll read you a couple of these. Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, his hair of his head like pure wool, his throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. This is Daniel's picture of God, the ancient of days. You hear a little bit of what was just described by John, particularly the hair and the fire. But he doesn't just have this vision. He has another vision that's recorded a couple chapters later. Daniel chapter 10, starting in verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold, Mufaz, around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude." And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I felt I was left alone, and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and I heard the sound, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. What Daniel has done, or what John has done, excuse me, is taken a picture of God, the Ancient of Days, and a picture of the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title in the gospel, and he's combined them together to make a clear declaration. 
And Jesus Christ is the eternal God taken flesh. That His glory is on display for all who are privileged to look upon it. Look at the connections here between Daniel and Revelation. Daniel 10.5, clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold. 1.13, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. There's the hair with pure, uh, like pure wool. The flaming torches for eyes. Arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. The sound of his words like the sound of a multitude or like the sound of many waters. His face like the appearance of lightning or like the sun was shining in full strength. John is describing what Daniel saw. But he recognizes, unlike Daniel, that this Son of Man is no mere angel, but is in fact the Son of God in flesh. He sees this divine being and he falls down as dead because he's terrified. When Isaiah came into the presence of God, he said, woe is me, I'm going to die now because I have seen God in his glory. Daniel fell down as if in a deep sleep and John fell down as if dead. Do not underestimate the glory of God. And we do. We do because I often think that I, and I will only speak for myself, do not take worship seriously enough. We have the privilege of worshiping in the presence of that glory by the power of the Holy Spirit. And too often I am concerned with this thing or with that thing when a more appropriate response would be to fall down in worship. It's that glory. It's the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we may never have received the book of Revelation if it were not for these next two words. John fell down as if dead, and Jesus could have said, yeah, right response, and then just taken him off to heaven. But he didn't. He looked at John and he said, Fear not. Fear not. That is so gracious. I'd be afraid too. It's a terrifying vision. And yet Jesus, arrayed in glory, perhaps the only other time John had seen anything like this was on the Mount of Transfiguration when he saw Christ transformed before him. He sees this risen Christ in his full glory and he falls as if dead. And this Christ in full glory reaches down and says, fear not. It's going to be okay. Fear not. Imagine you are a Christian in the first century and you're not sure if the next knock at the door is going to be a Roman centurion coming to take you from your family. Imagine if you're the church of Jesus Christ in one of these cities just trying to survive the persecution that is around you. Imagine you're in one of these churches and there's been false teaching that's trying to infiltrate and brothers and sisters that you love are being lured away by lesser things. Imagine the world so insane that you're not sure how we're going to make it another 
year. Imagine a world filled with terror. Perhaps not so hard to imagine it, is it? Imagine a world filled with fear and despair, and this God, with this glory, with this kind of love in his heart, reaches down and says, fear not. Fear not. It is one of the major themes throughout the entire book of Revelation. Jesus says to his church, fear not. And so, when there are people who get on television and tell us as Christians we should be afraid all the time, hear the word of Jesus Christ. Fear not. When people tell you that if the next election doesn't go the right way, then hear Jesus say, fear not. When you're worried because society seems to be turning against you, don't fight back. Rather, hear the word of Jesus Christ. Fear not. Why would he say that? Why fear not? Well, the verse continues. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So we began by looking at the situation of John on the island of Pasmos, we now have this vision of the Son of God, the vision of Christ. And the first thing Jesus says is, fear not because of his sovereignty. That's the third major thing we're looking at. The sovereignty of Christ. First, he's sovereign over all human events. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. He was alive at the beginning. He will be alive at the end. He is the living God, sovereign over all things. Over all human events, he is sovereign. And this is good news for a suffering church because they can only see the events that are in front of them, the events of suffering, the events of pain. And Jesus says, fear not, for I'm over all of this. You can trust me in the midst of this, for I am here and I am your king. I am the sovereign. Not only is he sovereign over all human events, he's sovereign over death. I live. Behold, I died, and now I live again. But he's not just alive. He's standing somewhere specific. That's how the vision ends. Right, therefore, the things that you've seen, the things that are and the things that are to take place after this, things that are, those things that we were going to experience over however long the Lord tarries for us to to return for us, the things that are. We're living in that age right now, and in the age to come when he returns, the things that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. If you go back and see where Jesus is standing in this vision, you see that he is standing in verse 13, in the midst of of the lampstands. The church is here, and he's standing right in its center. And so Jesus is saying, not only am I sovereign over all things, not only am I sovereign even over life and death, I am sovereign, and I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm for you. The world may be against you, but I'm with you. The empire might be against you, but I'm with you. 
And I'm sovereign over all things. So in the end, good news, church, I will be victorious, Christ says. And because I am victorious and you are in me, you too will walk in my victory. I can't imagine a more helpful, encouraging picture than what Jesus gives his church. These lampstands that are here, I'm right there. I'm standing with you in this. Whatever you're going through, Jesus is standing with you in it. Because he loves you. Because he's with you and he is for you. I think a lot of times when we go through suffering, we go through pain, we think God must be against us or we've done something wrong and so we deserve this. But what Jesus says to the church is, I am with you. I'm in the midst of you. I am for you. I'm for you. G.K. Beale says this, the initial vision we have here has shown Christ standing in complete authority over human history yet he does so standing amidst the churches which are going which are undergoing all sorts of trials and even apparent defeats there is pain and suffering in this world christ stands among us he loves us he is for us it was true in the first century when the church is facing Roman persecution, is true for us no matter what we're facing today. He is with us. He is for us. He stands amongst the lampstands. We lost somebody in the broader church of Jesus Christ whew, 10, 12 days ago now. I uh, saw the headline come through Christianity Today and it reminded me of somebody that I hadn't thought of in a while. He went by the name Brother Andrew. Brother Andrew was a Dutch Christian. His uh, real name was Anne Vanderbeel. I can't think of a more Dutch name than Vanderbeel. Um, and he, he, he grew up not really all that interested in Christianity, joined the military, by his own admission was involved in some pretty horrifying things, trying to oppress locals during the Dutch colonial time. He got shot while he was serving in the military, and while he was uh, recovering from a bullet in his ankle, he picked up a Bible and started reading it. And without a whole lot of fanfare, he came to Christ. And he decided he was going to go to school, he was going to start learning more about this Bible, he was going to start working in the church a little bit. And then he realized that there were some brothers and sisters behind the Iron Curtain in Czechoslovakia, that did not have access to the Bible. And so when he was on a trip in Czechoslovakia, he kind of scurried away from some of the people he was there with and went and met with the church and realized the need and started figuring out ways to smuggle Bibles behind the Iron Curtain to a variety of countries, even getting Bibles into the Soviet Union itself. He launched a ministry that many of us who are, have been in the church for a while, we know it's called Open Doors, and it's a ministry that is designed to try and raise up Christian leaders in places where there's a lot of persecution, a lot of pain. And so this is Brother Andrew's ministry. It far outlives him. He was called in his book, I have it here. This is a book that came out in 1968. They changed a bunch of names and dates at the time and places because it was actually happening. He wrote a firsthand account of his work, smuggling Bibles into the Soviet Union. Called it God's Smuggler. And uh, the L.A. Times on the front of it said, 
um, that is more thrilling than a spy story. All right. He actually didn't like the reception of the book because one of the things he said is, I'm just an ordinary guy, just feeling called to do this thing. I'm, I'm no hero in the faith. I just want our brothers and sisters on the other side of the Iron Curtain have access to the Scriptures. What drove Brother Andrew? What was it? Was it this desire for adventure? Was it a theological necessity? Was it this burning evangelical desire? Was it guilt or anxiety that he had so much and they had so little? I think it was none of those things. I think what led Brother Andrew to take his life in his hands and do this work was actually something he said when he came to Christ. He he tells us what his prayer was. And he says, he's very honest, he says, there wasn't much faith in my prayer, Vanderbilt said. I just said, Lord, if you will show me the way, I will follow you. Amen. That's it. It's the whole prayer. You show me the way, I'll follow you. Brother Andrew was led by a clear and surpassing vision of Christ. He saw Christ and followed him. And so he's right. He is nobody special because that is the call of all Christians. To have a vision of Christ similar to the vision that John received here. That this is our Christ and he points the way and we follow him. And and with that kind of vision, you hear the word vision a lot. We have a vision for the city. We have a vision for our company. We have a vision, vision, vision. We have a vision of Christ. He is our vision. We follow him. And as we follow him, he will lead us to do some pretty incredible things for his glory's sake. We may not be smuggling Bibles behind the Iron Curtain. But we may be a faithful witness in our workplace, a faithful witness in a family that doesn't understand our faith, a faithful witness in a neighborhood, a faithful witness amongst our friends. Because we have a clear vision of Christ. You show me the way, I will follow you. That's what Brother Andrew said to Jesus. You point, you lead, I follow. And it's a simple and beautiful prayer, but it is the prayer of our deepest need. A vision of Christ that leads us forward. And so whatever you're facing, whatever answers you're looking for, you may not actually need that answer first. feels like you do because there's a a date on the calendar or there's a funeral that is clear in your memory or there is a relationship that desperately needs to be mended. But notice, Jesus doesn't give John an answer to the persecution or the tribulation or the pain. Not right away. The first thing he does, he says, I need you to look at me. Look at me first. Then we'll figure out the rest. And so, what I encourage you to do with this text is to be honest about your situation like John was. What is your situation? What is the pain? What is the sin? Be honest. And then look to Christ. Develop your vision of him. Use passages like this to broaden your understanding of who Christ is and then trust in his sovereignty. Whatever you're going through, he will lead you through it. 
because he is the first and the last, the living one, sovereign over all things, who loves you and reaches down and tells you, fear not. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your goodness to us. There are many things in this world, many things in our lives that bring about fear. Lord, there are things that others do, there are things that we do, even our own sin, and it causes in us fear. Remind us of your grace. Tell us to fear not because you are with us and you are for us. Remind us that we can come to you with our sin and confess it because you are for us. Remind us that we can face tribulation and pain and suffering either from a fallen world or from a hateful world and you say, fear not for you are with us. We can face this because you are with us. Comfort us with your word. Encourage us. Give each of us a vision of Christ in all of his majesty and splendor, in all of his glory, help us to see Jesus. Help us to see him for all that he is. The God that even children will, are willing to run up to. The God of glory. The face that shines brighter than the sun. You are a majestic, glorious God. And you are with us. And you are for us. We thank you. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.